0: Join the conversation in Tipperary contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Time for our weekly, even global politics segment and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by uh, politics and economics student Thomas Conway. Thomas, good morning to you. Good morning Frank. Good to talk to you today. Cop 27, I suppose, um, that's the big story at the moment, isn't it? And you pose the question yourself, I mean, is it a talking shop or is there anything substantive about it at all, Thomas?
1: I think that's what many people people are asking, is it a talking shop? Like, obviously, over the past week, we've had various world leaders converging. Our own Micheál Martin was there last week. President Biden also there. All of them making promises. And it has to be said, was looking at the statistics and there is no doubt that action is being taken on climate change. The question is, is it sufficient? Is Mm. it sufficient to limit the degree of warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is The stated mission, that was what was agreed with the Paris Agreement in uh, in 2015 to limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So when we talk about pre-industrial levels, we look back to the year in around 1850. Uh, That's when the world started warming rapidly. Now, global temperatures have already increased by around 1.2, 1.3 degrees. So we're we're heading towards that 1.5 threshold and many have asked is it attainable is it attainable to limit warning to that level and should we maybe almost moderate our goals slightly now world leaders have been pretty unambiguous uh you know they they uh they really want they really want to achieve their objective but it looks increasingly difficult given given the scale of global mm. warming, given what we're witnessing across the planet. And,
0: and very few countries are coming up with
1: the goods, really. Very few countries are, are coming up it's with it the 29 goods. 29
0: countries, I think,
1: is it? Uh, th- that is all, yeah, yeah. Th- that is all. And at the same time, you have the global south, uh, which is obviously growing increasingly frustrated. They are on the, the frontier when it comes to chi- uh, to climate change. You take a country like the Maldives... Uh, a lot of their sovereign territory is underwater, it being an island state. If temperatures continue to rise, if sea levels continue to rise, up to, I think, 70% of their territory could be flooded, essentially. So, a disastrous scenario for them. For so,
0: so, just for clarity then, Thomas, I mean, what are the aims? What what are we looking for?
1: Yeah. So, we have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is essentially the UN's climate watchdog, if, if you like. And they have recommended a series of measures to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, countries, as I've said, have taken steps forward. If we look at a couple of the, the, the major polluters, China remains the world's biggest emitter of carbon and, and by a considerable distance as well. At the same time, it accounts for a third of all global solar power It's the world's biggest producer of wind energy. So I'm not defending China, but at least they are taking steps. Mm. The thing is, its reliance on coal is unsustainably high. According to the, the IEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency... It needs to cut its demand for coal by a staggering eighty percent wow. by 2060 in and order to. Of course, to coal achieve.
0: is the real baddie. Coal
1: it? is the real baddie. Yeah. It's one of the fossil fuels. It's you know it's extre- it Causes extreme pollution. Now we talk about China there, but the U.S. Mm. is still the largest per capita per person emitter of carbon. It derives eighty percent of its energy from oil and gas still. So a huge reliance on fossil fuels. Now, President Biden, in fairness to him, is really attempting to address the situation. In August, he signed a a sweeping. It was a $700 billion bill, around 390 of which was directly committed to climate action, climate funding. That is, by any measure, an historic investment. I think the biggest investment in climate action in US history. His, his agenda, however, now... We should say the midterms have gone favourably enough for President Biden, yeah. but the Republicans will still take control of the House and will be able to dictate the agenda mm. to a certain And degree. they're still sceptical, aren't and they? And many of them are still sceptical. And we might talk about Trump a little bit later in yeah. the problem. Trump, obviously a huge sceptic of climate change, withdrew from, from the Paris Agreement. Interesting to see whether his potential challenger... Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, is similarly sceptical or whether he takes a a more progressive approach to that issue. But that's that's It'll a story for another day.
0: Yeah, I love his line, though. Uh, this is where woke comes to die. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, yeah. He comes out with these, yeah. <laughs> does, does, yeah. He
0: does But as you say, that's a whole other story. Where, where Europe is concerned, then, I mean, we still have big uh, carbon emitters, haven't we, we?
1: We do. Germany, Italy, Poland, Germany, of course probably surprising but it is the industrial heartland of the EU it does and it has that reliance on Russian oil and Russian gas which we've seen now the fact that the continent of Europe has been forced to pivot away from Russia is probably a good thing in the long term because I suppose it has accelerated the knee or the the move towards more sustainable energy so that is taking place at a European level a lot of European countries leading the way Ireland, it has to be said, and Taoiseach Miel Martin addressed the summit last weekend, or last week rather, he outlined a number of measures. He said, you know, substantive climate action, what does it mean? It means the delivery of offshore wind targets, further measures on biodiversity, environmentally friendly friendly farming, retrofitting of housing and building which it, buildings, which is a big one. But at the same time, we have the second highest per person emissions. In the EU, if every country, Fran, emitted like we did, the world would already have warmed by three degrees. So twice the recommended level. So that is, that's astonishing.
0: That's amazing indeed. If I could just uh, interrupt you for a moment because some uh, breaking news and very sad news indeed, the cervical cancer campaigner Vicky Phelan has uh, passed away. So it's very sad news. She died in the early hours of this morning at Milford Hospice in uh, Limerick and of course she was diagnosed with uh, cervical cancer back in uh, 2014 and spoke to us on the show yeah uh, sad to hear times. that very, brilliant very you
1: sad know a news brilliant campaigner yeah. and, and I think the whole country will be touched by that yeah.
0: absolutely for sure we'll be speaking to her, solicitor uh, Tipperary's uh, Keanu Carroll as well just just after 11 o'clock this morning um, it just uh, finally on that new technologies may offer some yeah, this was this where, was very
1: this interesting concerned. I read this in The Economist last week the world is embracing new technologies and new technologies are unequivocally going to help in the fight against climate change. One such example is something called solar geoengineering. Now, what does it do? It sounds very ambitious, but it's a complex new technology which seeks to reduce the amount of sunlight that reaches the Earth's surface by injecting particles into the, into the stratosphere, into the atmosphere. Those particles would then reflect sunlight away from the planet, away from the Earth's surface. Now, it sounds incredibly futuristic, wow. incredibly ambitious. But, but therefore, for cooling the planet, is that they're it? They're essentially, yeah. So you, you limit the amount of direct sunlight which hits the surface. The planet is obviously going to cool. It's not going to warm to the same extent. So all those avenues are now being explored because we have to pull out every stop. And that's the kind of measures that governments and agencies are now looking at.
0: Interesting. Let's have a look at uh, Turkey and uh, just before we start with this I suppose it's important to point out that atrocity that happened in Istanbul.
1: Yeah an appalling attack yesterday I think 25 people killed yeah. and, and Recep Tayyip up Erdogan. Their president has come out strongly strongly against it, condemned it as a, a probable terrorist act. So obviously you know our
0: thoughts with with the people That's who have died absolutely in that. for sure. The, the president's role as a mediator then.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And and people will have been very interested to see where Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the, Ru- the, uh, the Turkish president, has positioned himself in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war. He seems to have evolved into a kind of mediator, a go-between between both countries. Now, it should be said, Erdogan himself is, is often described as a, a quasi-dictator, if you like. He became president in 2014, and since then he has kind of steadily eroded various aspects of Turkey's democratic institutions. He silenced opposition critics, he subdued the media, and he'll seek another term as president in June 2023, so in a couple of months' time. And he will be challenged, but it looks at this stage that he's probably likely to prevail and hold on to the presidency. So... Turkey, a country of, of over 85 million people. We know its history. It's a land of rich culture, heritage, mm. home to various ancient civilizations and then fell under the control subsequently of the Ottomans. Now, after World War II, the leadership of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, he was kind of the founding father of Turkey, as we know it today. And he he established a secular independent republic. Now, that contrasts to the Turkey that we know today under Tayyip er- uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, which is, I suppose, aligned very much with kind of a, a nationalist mm. brand of politics. He he uses fiery rhetoric, a strong allegiance to Islam, and a kind of a a showman, nationalist politician, a populist, if you like. Very interesting and intriguing character as well. Mm. Formerly the mayor of Istanbul, became Prime Minister, uh, founded his own political party, the Justice and Development Party in 2001, and then became Prime Minister in 2002. Wow. Yeah, so really a meteoric rise
0: up the ranks. Absolutely. Um, It was interesting this morning, I I heard, um, when when the bomb went off in Istanbul, immediately they shut down social media. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that, I think, is probably indicative of Erdogan's style of leadership. He has done everything to, I think, consolidate his own grip on power. In 2017, he actually transformed Turkey's parliamentary democratic system. So they had a a system somewhat akin to to what we have here in Ireland, a parliament and a prime minister. He transformed it into a presidential structure like, we'll say, the US, like France. And he obviously became president. And that was a direct act at consolidating his own grip on power.
0: But does he have the credentials to be a mediator between Russia and Ukraine? Well,
1: this is the very interesting thing. Now, Turkey is a member of NATO. And Turkey has the second largest military in NATO behind the United States in terms of military personnel. Its infrastructure, its military infrastructure may not be quite as sophisticated. But in terms of sheer numbers and sheer firepower... It is the second largest, uh, it has the second largest military in NATO. The thing is, Turkey also has a reliance on Russia. Vladimir Putin and Recep Tayyip Erdogan need each other. Trade ties, since the, the onset of the war in Ukraine, trade ties between Turkey and Russia have boomed. I was looking at some of the statistics prior to coming on. They're bound together by economics, essentially imports to turkey from russia surged by 86 percent year on year in october turkish imports to russia almost doubled so that is you know that captures the degree of dependency between both countries and then you have the kind of military dynamic because turkey has cooperated with russia in various regional conflicts the war in syria Conflicts in, in Libya and the Caucasus, they have fought side by side with Russian troops. So there is a military alliance between both countries as well. And yet, uh, Erdogan has pro- has kind of condemned the Russian invasion to a certain extent. I think really what it points to is that Turkey is its own independent power. It, it, it tried to join the EU several years ago its attempts were largely unsuccessful and since then it has kind of gone its own way
0: so Erdogan is
1: his own man Turkey is its own country
0: yeah, I'm just trying to get my head around a NATO country that has such strong ties with Russia
1: yeah I think to a certain extent it may be to do with its location Yeah. remember yeah. Turkey is kind of its location it's a gateway to the Middle East yes. a gateway to and Asia it's, it's
0: always been hasn't and it, it and has always the, yeah. been
1: down through yeah. history like it, it, it is called a democracy, but it's an imperfect democracy. The Economist Index ranks at 103 out of 167 countries in terms of their own democracy index so you know that is that is not a glowing endorsement of of glo- of turkey's democratic credentials by any measure for at
0: all sure indeed uh, let's just look at the world cup for a few moments before we we go and uh, of course how controversial is qatar and uh, would you tell us about the country
1: yeah i mean it, it, it's fascinating really i mean people people might be asking look why is this world cup so controversial why has there been so much of a furore over it, and in essence, there are two main reasons. It has been widely criticised for its re- or for its attitude towards same-sex relationships, its ban on same-sex uh, same-sex marriage and the like, and as well as that, its treatment of migrant workers. But I mean, the story goes back further. It was chosen as the host nation for 2022 way back in 2010, won a ballot of of FIFA's executive members. It was later accused of paying FIFA officials an estimated $3.7 billion in bribes. Now, it was subsequently cleared of those charges, but, you know, I I have my own doubts as to how thorough that investigation actually was. But as for the country itself, a population of just over 2.9 million people It's located on a small peninsula which stretches out into the Persian Gulf across from Iran, borders Saudi Arabia. So in terms of geographical area, it's only the size of Wexford. Wow,
0: I didn't realise
1: that. Yeah, and this is is the astonishing thing. Most of the stadia for this World Cup are situated in and around the capital, Doha. But to give you an idea of how urbanised the country actually is, 99% of Qataris, Qatari people, live in a city. They either live in Doha, its environs, or some other um, some other uh, urban suburb mm. of that. 85% of the workforce is actually foreign, so you have a lot of migrant workers there. 25% of it is female. In terms of the governance structure, Qatar, like many Middle Eastern states, is a hereditary monarchy. So like Saudi Arabia, like, like other places across the Middle East, it is ruled by a royal family at the head of which is Sheikh Tamim Bilhamid al-Thani. So Sheikh al-Thani, he inherited the crown from his father in 2013. is there a
0: religious uh, dynamic? There There
1: is an extremely religious dynamic. I mean, it should be said, it's quite a sophisticated and advanced economy. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's been to Doha will tell you the infrastructure is incredible. Uh, You know, very modern and sophisticated. But at the same time, it adheres to what is known as Sharia law, which is kind of a Muslim law essentially. So same sex relationships are prohibited. Punishments include fines, prison sentences of up to seven years, and wait for this even death by stoning. That is still on the statute Good books God. there. Alcohol? Alcohol still restricted in public places. Now, it will be available during the World Cup, but there will still be, like it has to be available, some of the the major yeah. sponsors are, are alcohol companies, but there will still be, I suppose, restrictions on when it can be taken and where it can be drank. So, it, you know, there is a very interesting dynamic here and Qatar's approach to Kluman rights then that has been a massive bone of contention mm. in the lead up to this tournament. So
0: why would they want this? Is this some sort of publicity? Study? Is this marketing?
1: Well, this goes to the heart of the term. People will have heard the term sports washing, and I suppose Qatar twenty twenty two is the quintessential example of sports washing, which is the use of sport to enhance a country's image and kind of furnish its reputation on the world stage. Now, instances of sports washing practically ubiquitous. Nowadays, particularly in the context of soccer, Paris Saint Germain, the uh, the Parisian football club, is actually already owned by Qatar. Saudi Ar- or, or, sorry, Abu Dhabi owns Manchester City. Newcastle United, the club which I've supported for years, was recently taken over by Saudi Arabia. I'm now a reluctant supporter, <laughs> albeit they're doing very well. So I mean, this yes. is what sports
0: washing is. It it's is, incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. All, all this glossy advertising for Qatar as well. I mean, it's painting this sort of uh, idyllic. Uh, it certainly picture, is, and yeah. you
1: know, it's trying to, as I say, furnish its reputation on the global stage, and it will probably do that. I mean, people have talked about protesting about not watching the football, but it will probably get the usual record audiences. People will tune in and, you know, we saw it with Russia four years ago.
0: We only have a moment left, so just quickly what to look out for.
1: Yeah, I'll just focus on the G20 summit because a notification just came up on my phone there. President Biden and President Xi Jinping have just shaken hands, which is a significant development. The G20, of course, is the group of 20... Of the most advanced and influential countries, they're currently meeting in Indonesia on the Indonesian island of Bali over the next few days. And it will be a fascinating summit in terms of who meets who. Obviously, Biden has met Xi now. What conversations are had and how it dictates global politics for the next the next couple of months.
0: Very good, Thomas. And of course, all eyes will be on Mr. Trump as well. Yeah,
1: tomorrow uh, yeah. you can expect a presidential bid from him. He might be damaged, but he's not going away.
0: Yeah, that's for certain. Thomas, is always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, you. You, Thank you, Good morning to you. Just to repeat again that breaking news, the cervical cancer campaigner, Vicky Phelan, has passed away and we'll be talking to her solicitor at uh, Tipperary's Keanu O'Carroll, just uh, after the news at 11. News coming up.